This past weekend, Israel marked a grim milestone. In the first half of 2023, over 100 Arab citizens have died by violence. This scourge has many faces, organized crime, domestic violence, random acts of anger, just like in every community throughout the world. According to the Abraham Initiative, when polled for several years running, members of Arab communities have said that the issues that most concern them are crime and violence. But many Arab citizens of Israel feel that the Jewish state just isn't putting the resources into fighting the wave of violence in a long-term, comprehensive way. People are talking about it as the violence in the Arab society. First of all, it's the violence in the Israeli society. That's Professor Mona Khoury, the Vice President for Strategy and Diversity at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She's a full professor at the Hebrew University School of Social Work, and much of her research focuses on child and adolescent deviance and delinquent behaviors. She has concrete suggestions for breaking this cycle of violence. So this week, when all eyes are finally on the uptick of violence in Arab communities, I, Amanda Borchel-Dan, ask Professor Mona Khoury, what matters now? Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Mona, thank you so much for allowing me to join you in your Hebrew University office here at the Mount Scopus campus. Thank you for coming. Such a pleasure to be here. Our topic at hand is less pleasurable, of course. This past weekend, we saw a record high of over 100 members of the Arab-Israeli community dead due to violence in the community. And so I'm here to ask you, what matters now? I think it is the way people feel now, the unsafety that many people, parents, children, everyone feels in the Arab society these days. Even people that they are not involved at all in violence, delinquency, and any kind of deviant behavior, many people now feel unsafe in their even homes, neighborhoods. And in fact, obviously, most people are not involved in violence or delinquent behavior. Of course, this is actually the main thing that people should know, that even though we have 100 people who were killed, 
Many of them are not involved. Even those, the victims are not involved in violence. Some of them were just in the wrong place in the wrong time. And unfortunately, they were killed. But the, another thing that people should know that despite this high percentage of people who are involved in violence in the Arab society, it is still very, very, very small number compared to the a fact that we are two millions here in Israel. So even though we have, and unfortunately it's high, and it, the killing of one person is high, but still if we compare it to the larger, the, the size of the population, it is a very large population and most of it are not violent. And unfortunately these people make it look like that the Arab population is violent or the all the Arab population is violent. And in fact, just saying the Arab population is not accurate. There are many Arab populations. So for our listeners who have perhaps never been to Israel, can you break down just broad strokes? What are these different populations that make up the Arab population? So if we are talking about the Arab population or about the citizens of Israel who are Arabs, we are talking about mainly three groups. The Muslim Arab population, that is the majority of the Arab population in Israel, and it is almost 84% of the Arab population. We have the Christian Arab population, which is 8% of the Arab population. And we have third group, the Druze population, which is also uh, almost 8% of the uh, Arab population in Israel. And also within these groups, we have also differences between Arabs who live in the cities, Arabs who live in the villages, Arabs who live in the northern part of Israel, compared to those who live in the central part of Israel, or the population, the Bedouin population, that most of it lives in the a, a southern part of Israel. Okay. Now, most of your research, as far as I understand it, has dealt with youth. And one of the papers, or one of the numbers that I saw in one of your papers was something like 28% of those youth who participated in your study had perpetrated some kind of violence. Is that accurate, first of all? Yeah, first of all, it's accurate. It's an unfortunate number that we know that Arab uh, youth are involved unproportionately to their uh, percentage in the Israeli population in violence and delinquency, especially if we're looking at the official data. It looks like 54% of the crimes committed by Arab youth, while their percentage is almost 26% in the Israeli population. So it's much higher. And when we are looking about self-report uh, studies that we have, we also see that the Arab youth report more than Jewish students on violence. Still, it is the differences between them or the gap is larger when we are talking about severe parts of violence, severe kinds of violence. When you have a physical violence that you needed to go for a medical a treatment or something like that. When we are talking about, and it's, there is no moderate kind of violence. Violence is violence, but in order to, to differentiate between the types, when we are talking about pushing, slapping, and then in the school, we see that the Arab youth and the Jewish youth are involved almost in the same percentage of uh, this kind of violence. 
Okay, so just to reiterate what you said, when it comes to school ground fights, things of that nature, Arab youth and Jewish youth are about the same. But then when you take it up a notch, when it comes to needing medical attention and things of that sort, then Arab youth self-reported, we must uh, remind people, uh, jump the gap. Exactly, exactly. And this is actually um, emphasizing the self-reported because it is uh, the same as when we are talking about crime and, you know, official reports. So we know that Arab youth also self-report specifically on severe kind of violence. They report more than Jewish kids. For example, in a carrying weapon to school, we know that Arab children report higher than Jewish children on carrying weapons to school. So this is one kind also of severe acts of violence and delinquency. Is that because perhaps there aren't guards uh, at the gates of the school as there are in Jewish schools? Or what would cause that to happen? I don't think the reason is guards because there are some guards in Arab schools. I'm not sure in all of them. I'm not sure they look. So it's not the existence of the guard. It's like, you know, looking. But most of the studies shows that the checking is not actually the main reason for decreasing the numbers. One of the things that we know, and it's in some way reminds us with what's going on in the United States, is the access to weapon. And this is actually, we can see it now with all the killing in the Arab society. We can see the amount of weapon who exists in homes in the Arab society. So I believe this is one of the reasons that the access to weapon is easier for Arab children in some cases. We also should remember we're talking about a very small number of children who carried weapon to school, but you know, one gun can kill a lot of people. For sure, as we saw last week with the unfortunate shooting. Now, I want to ask you about one of the statements that I saw in one of your papers, which is basically talking about a catch-22 cycle, meaning Arab youth who witness violence in their communities are more likely to perpetuate violence. Talk to us a little bit about this. Yeah, actually, this is exactly what happens. And the results show first that Arab youth are highly exposed to violence in their communities. If we are talking about personal experience, 50% of the participants indicated that they were victim of any kind of violence during the last month in their neighborhood. And when we ask them if they witnessed someone who was a victim of violence, the number goes to 80%. So Arab youth, even if they are not victims, they almost see all the time violence in their surrounding area. And what we found that this is one of the predictors of being a violent kid. So Arab youth who live in this environment are highly exposed to violence. And then they, they use their violence in some cases toward their parents, toward their sibling, toward their friends in the, in the school. So it is like a circle that we have to do something in order to change the situation. And of course, one of the main thing is stopping the violence in the Arab society. But that's such a huge task. Let's break it down like your papers do into the different uh, frontiers, starting with the home. Yes. So first of all, it's a 
big issue and a serious problem and it will take time to solve it, the violence in the Arab society. So there are many things and them as a social worker can say that there are many interventions and many things that we know from research that are very helpful. For example, in this situation that I explained about community violence and that predicts violence. But one of the things that we found in our studies that when the kid has a good relationship with their parents and when they have parents who are involved in their life, have a good communication with them, the effect of community violence or exposure to community violence is lower than when you have a bad relationship with your parents. So this is something that we can do even if we are not solving now immediately the situation in the Arab communities, which I say we should do something, but at least we can work now with parents and professionals who work in schools, in social services, and in other places should know and be aware about the huge effect that parents have on their also youth, in their teenagers. In many cases, we hear that parents don't have this much of influence on their teenage children, but it's not true. Research show that it has, and we should also work on a family therapy and not only focusing on the violent kid. And, you know, we have to involve the parents as important part of our intervention. So what I said in a simple word, I will say it again, that if we have two kids who are exposed to the same level of violence and one of them has a good relationship with his or her parents and the other one doesn't have, we can see that the one who has a good relationship will not be as affected as his friend from being exposed to violence. So it sounds like what you're saying is that to prevent even getting to a problem child, you know, I hate that term, but to getting to a position in which a child is acting out, the parents need to be instructed ahead of time how to be better parents and to raise better children. Of course. And one of the main thing is working with parents when their children are very young. We know that also from my studies that also children start their violence very, very early. And we know that violence starts also in kindergartens and kindergarten teachers report on the children in their classes that there are violent mothers in my study reported that their children three to five years old they were also violent and one of the main things that we are talking about is working with the parents in many situations we hear that the staff in this case the kindergarten teacher or the staff in schools say that the parents also use violence against their children. So we have nothing to do. And this is the main problem and the main challenge that when you say we don't have to do anything, you are giving up on this child and we can't blame him and we can't let it go with this situation like the the violent. What we have to do is work with the parents and to show them that this actually will result in having a child who is violent and to have intervention and prevention efforts in that respect. So I'm the mother of four teenagers, and you say that I have some influence on them, but it doesn't always feel like that. And it really feels like their friend group has a lot more influence on them at this point. So how do we make better nonviolent friend groups for this age as well? 
So you are touching a very important part, which is the friends. We know that the peer group during teenage years has a tremendous effect on children. So, but the friends of your kid, they don't come up suddenly. They are in many cases, usually as a, as you said, you have 14 years old a child. You can, you know that many of these friends are friends for many years, you know, and you have to work on that also and to be aware with whom your child is going, with whom they are hanging out, what happens there. And in some cases, yes, to involve other parents, if you know something, to take your kids to professional intervention, to talk with the teachers, because in many cases, these are classmates or schoolmates. So they know each other from some place. Like if you look at children, usually they hang out with people that they know from their, you know, normal environment, neighborhood, classes, schools. So we can do something also with the peer group. But again, the studies shows also the effect of peer group is lower. Even if it's a liquid peer group, it is lower when you have a good relationship with your parents. So we believe in some way, because children spend a lot of time with their friends, that we don't have this much of effect. But we have because imagine you... Your child is growing up with you, with the values you are teaching them, with everything you are telling them, and with the way you behave for many years. So it doesn't disappear. It's something like speaking, talking, walking, everything. And violent is something that develops. And being pro-social is something also... We develop this based on what we see in our environment. So if you raise your child on these values that they should not be violent and you give them the tools and the skills how not to be violent, even in conflict situation, they will use it later. They don't need you to be with them everywhere because I'm not saying like you have to go hang out with your kid, which is something that unfortunately parents think that they should do it by following, you know, tracking their phones and these things. And we know that it's not helpful. So it's better to be aware of all the things that you can do with your kid children when they are young than tracking their phones and the, the apps that they use. In your research, are you finding differences between male and females? Yes, we know that males are much more violent than females. Almost in all indicator of violence, there are inconsistent results regarding what we called indirect violence, which at the beginning, the results show that females are more violent in that type of violence. And when I'm talking about indirect violence, we are talking about gossiping, you know, all these kind of spreading rumors and all uh, the quote unquote bad mean girl yeah, tactics. They, they what call it. And many people like to say, yeah, it's something that uh, uh, girls like to do it. But the study shows even when the females were higher, the males still do it. Like, and this we should remember. It wasn't like the females do it like 60% and males 1%. No, it was like maybe 65% compared to 55%. So it means all of them are doing that. In some way, females do it more, but one of the explanations that females doing it as part of being violent in a way that is culturally accepted while they are not or they would want to use physical violence as males will use it. So this is the way they can express in some way their anger, 
their solve conflict by using this kind of violence. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so we've identified a lot of the issues at stake for the youth in particular. Now I'd like to talk about some ways that we can solve it. So we implemented a comprehensive program in which a a lot of collaborators were involved, and it includes the social services, provision officers, uh, social workers who work at the Division of Children at, uh, at Risk, the police, the social justice ministry, and other uh, factors who are involved in this project. And all of them worked in order to change the situation. And of course, the municipality of Jerusalem and the education system. So each one of them did something in his field so the police changed for example the way the police acts in these neighborhoods and the education system they gave extracurriculum activities after the uh, school day ends and others gave you know the social provision officers were more involved the division at you uh, for youth at risk which was the most a important i believe element in that because they organized all the activities they gave intervention for the children and also worked with the parents so this comprehensive activity helped 
in decreasing the involvement of the participants. Actually, this was an evaluation study and we show, saw that their participation affected their behavior and they were less violent at the end of this intervention. How long was this intervention? It was at least a year. These kids, some of them are still in this intervention. And one of the things that these kids has a criminal record on stone throwing, but the deal they got that if they go into this intervention, they will not go into the, the court. So their file will not will be like frozen for this time. And if they will go to the intervention, so it will be closed after a while. And this is what happens many in the first year, many of the parents and the kids didn't want to participate and they were very suspicious. And lately I met the head of the division for youth at risk and she said, now parents are asking me to take their kids to this intervention in order to help them actually to stop because we saw also in this study and in a larger study among a large sample of youth in East Jerusalem, this study focused on youth in East Jerusalem, that there is a strong relationship between being involved in stone throwing and the regular violence that we call it. So these kids were involved also in additional types of violence and delinquency and when they participated in intervention or any activity, it helped also in decreasing their overall participation in crime and not only this specific one. They had huge incentive to participate, but if you put that even to the side, it sounds like the parents were seeing a huge change in their in their children's peers. And so they're asking to be uh, part of this program. So is this the kind of program that can be broadened more nationally? Actually, it's not nationally for now. They are broadening because it started in one neighborhood and now they are implementing it in three additional neighborhoods in Jerusalem. So they are trying to do that. And I believe in the future it will be implemented in other places in Israel, but it should have the adaptation because we are talking here about a specific kind of a criminal activity and specific, you know, uh, circumstances that we have in East Jerusalem. But the main thing of this or the main idea of this intervention that it involves all the resources that the kids are in touch usually and that they have the ability to support and help. So in some ways, the social services don't have the ability to give extracurriculum activities. But when the education system is involved, say they could do the change in the school and when the police is involved they can do the change in the neighborhood so this is the way that you can change everything but while you are focusing only on the violent child it's very difficult to make the change because at the end of the day they go home and they go to their neighborhoods and as we mentioned it's full of violence Okay. It sounds like this uh, would require a huge amount of oversight and budget. And do you see either of those being uh, given to Arab communities? I hope so. You know, the situation is so bad that if they will not do that, it will get worse. It will not be solved. You know, there is no way that this situation will be better without investing all these resources. So something should be done. Otherwise, you know, now people are talking about it as the violence in the Arab society. First of all, it's a violence in the Israeli society. And 
the time that we consider it or define it this way, the, cha- the, the change will start. Because all the time that you are looking at it as a problem of only the Arab society in Israel, it will not be an interest of anyone in the government. But when you look at it as a problem in the Israeli society, and unfortunately, I don't want to say that, but what happens in the Arab villages and cities in some time, in some period, it will go also for the Jewish neighborhoods and for cities. And, you know, and what I'm trying to say that it's better to solve this problem now. Otherwise, we will get into an additional kind of conflict and you would never know how it will develop after that. Right. It sounds like what you're t- hinting at is a more extremist population, a more militant population. And already, as I understand it, many uh, Arab citizens of Israel don't have much confidence in the police or in Israeli general bureaucracy. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, also studies shows that it's not only something that we feel or we know that studies that uh, explored this topic showed that the Arab population feel that they are treated in a different way than the Jewish population by the police and other official uh, offices in Israel. And when you have no trust in the police, unfortunately, you will turn to other resources to solve your problems. And this is in some way what happens now in the Arab society that people are not turning to the police because they don't have any confidence in them and they don't believe that they are here to help them. In many ways, the Arab population perceives the police as something that it's against them. And if you look at the way the police treated the Arab population for many years, they treated us as enemies. So it's from the two parts of it, there is no trust. And this is actually what happens. So you can't plan the Arab situation. Now people say they don't want to go and to have to having, you know, cooperate with the police and because they don't trust them. I think that's a global problem, by the way. But you mentioned earlier as well, the availability of weaponry of uh, purchasing handguns and all sorts of other yeah. weapons. And in fact, it appears to me that the um, once you're caught with this kind of weapon, the sentencing is very light. That there's no real incentive to not purchase these kind of guns. Are, are you feeling that as well? I'm not sure about it. Actually, many of the studies show that sentencing and being harsh is not effective. You should implement it. First, you should catch them and send them to jail. And what happens in the Arab society that only a very, very low percentage of these crimes are solved and people are sent to jail because of it. So this is the problem. It's not the sentencing. It is it is itself. It is what happens that they are not cut at all and they are not arrested. And they and even if they are arrested, they are not going into the court process and this is what happens that people don't believe that it's effective they are sent back to the communities with their guns or with their guns <laughs> and in some way they take revenge of the people that they think they spoke with the police about it 
It sounds like what you're saying to me is the violence in the community is the same types of violence that we see in all communities. It's domestic, it's organized crime, it's all sorts of things of this nature. But there's no lid on it. There's no way of stopping it. And it's spilling out. And right now we're in a situation in which it's become more in the news because, of course, the high number of fatalities right now. But it's always simmering. The pot is always simmering. Would you agree? I would say that the violence actually existed before that. Some people say it's because of this government. I can tell you honestly, I want to blame this government for many things. This is not one of them. The violence in the Arab society was before that. The numbers I mentioned when we started talking, they are numbers before this government. Maybe something is happening now again with this government and with um, their disability to solve the problem. But I'm expecting this government to take responsibility now and to start planning the way they should solve this problem. They can't say, as I said, ah, it was before, so we don't have anything to do. No, someone should stop it. And you are now the government, you are the police, and you should take responsibility for that. And one of the things is that blaming the Arab society will not make them take any responsibility. So I'm not saying, again, that we as an Arab society, we are not blamed in anything. Okay? No, we also should have, we also should take responsibility because we have some things that are related to us and we are responsible for that. But all these organized crimes, the normal citizen can't help it, you know. We can't solve it. And also our politicians. Some people say, why the politicians don't stop it? What do you expect them to go collect the guns? Like it's not their rule. There is a police in this country and the police should not act as it's in kindergarten that they are getting humiliated from the Arab society if they are attacked. No, you are the police. You should continue and be consistent in your aim to solve this problem. You can't, if you are attacked, then you say, I'm not going there anywhere. It's not a kindergarten. You know, it's a huge problem and you should take responsibility and as a state to solve this problem of the Israeli society. Again, it's not of the Arab society. So words have power, as you know. And I understand that in uh, Hebrew media, for instance, there's a lot of talk of Arab violence. And this can happen, of course, in English media as well, that it's not violence in Arab communities. It is Arab violence. Are you finding that yourself? Yeah, and of course, people here, it's not only in the media, politicians say it, the violence happens because the Arab, it's in, in our culture. And this way I emphasized when we started talking that despite the unfortunate number of killing and people who are killed now and victims of violence, the majority of us are not violent. So you can't say culturally, otherwise I will be now violent towards you. So it's not the situation. We are two million. There is a number of us who are violent but not because of our culture there are many reasons why this violence it ha is happening here and if you can see if it's culture of violence or something like that we can see that two children who are raised in the same place in the same home one is violent and one is very educated working normal person so there is something that is making some people violent and we know that there is no one single reason for being violent there are many reasons and we if we want to solve the problem we have to touch all of them we can't say it's only the culture it's only the police it's only the arabs it's only the socioeconomic status and one the example i gave earlier about this comprehensive intervention is that everyone takes responsibility 
on their duties and then the violence can be lower and can be solved. But otherwise, if you keep blaming one each other, it will not be resolved at all. Mona, I thank you so much for your thoughts, really. Thank you. Thank you for discussing this very unfortunate uh, situation. The over 100 Arab citizens dead by violence in the first half of 2023 are more than a string of numbers. Three years ago, Sarit Ahmad complained to police that her brothers were threatening to murder her, with one offering up to $56,000 for killing her after she spoke about being in a romantic relationship with another woman. On June 9th, 18-year-old Sarit Ahmad was shot dead. The police suspect the killing was linked to her sexual orientation. Case cracked. Special thanks to the Times of Israel's Arabic edition editor, Suha Khalifa, on her enlightening thoughts ahead of my conversation with Professor Mona Khouri. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, shalom. Shalom.